This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. This is Episode 45, The Five Good Emperors. Back in episode 43, we introduced the Flavian dynasty, which consisted of Emperor Vespasian and his two sons, who would also go on to become Roman emperors, Titus and Domitian. Vespasian was regarded as a good and responsible emperor. Titus attempted to carry on his father's good work, but his reign was brief. When Domitian took over, things appeared to be stable at first, but during his 15-year reign, at the end of the 1st century, the situation worsened due to Domitian's paranoia causing him to order the execution of many senators, which led to a conspiracy to murder him that was successfully carried out. The Senate would push forward one of their own to take the role of emperor, a man called Nerva, who was reluctant to punish those who instigated the assassination of Domitian. This did not please the army, who also demanded that he name an heir. So he did name an heir. His name was Marcus Ulpius Traianus, better known to us today as Trajan. Trajan was notable for being the first Roman emperor to be born outside of the Italian peninsula, specifically in Hispania, at a city called Italica, which can be found just to the north of the modern Spanish city of Sevilla. You can visit the archaeological site of Italica, where you can walk into the middle of its amphitheatre in exactly the same way that you can at Pompeii the focal city of last week's episode. Trajan was a military man, so his appointment would have met the approval of the army, but maybe not so much the Senate, who would have always ideally wanted to return to the days of the Republic, where they had more power and influence. It is quite remarkable how Trajan approached his new responsibilities when Nerva died in the year 98 and Trajan became the emperor. Rather than go to Rome, he would send orders for the execution of those who had forced Nerva to target the murderers of Domitian, and he also made sure that the army was receiving no financial favours either. So if the army believed that Trajan would be their puppet, then they were sorely mistaken as when Trajan did go back to Rome, he would look to ingratiate himself to the Senate, and take a diplomatic and dutiful approach to his role as Roman Emperor. This attitude would extend to his social attitude as he actively sought to improve the standards of living for some of the poorer people of the Empire, sending trusted individuals such as Pliny the Younger to act as a remote governor of far-off provinces such as Bithynia Pontus. 
One interesting fact about Trajan was the fact that he married a woman who gained a reputation for her virtue and dignity and for her philanthropic attitude towards the people of the empire, pushing the improvement of fair taxation and education as well as improving the lives of the poor. Her name was Pompeia Plotina and alongside her husband she would form one half of a very successful husband and wife team at the forefront of the empire. So, it may come as a surprise to note that many historians believe that Trajan was homosexual. He certainly didn't have any children, and there are plenty of references to his sexual desires towards other men in contemporary writings. However, it also seems that his marriage appeared to be a happy and successful one too. This may be a sound reflection on how capable and affable Trajan was as a character in that he had a very strong ability to keep everyone on side. So already we are getting the feeling that we are talking about an emperor who belongs in the same category as the good emperors of the past such as Augustus and Vespasian. Back in episode 43, we also learned of how the former emperor Domitian had had to concede to making tributes to the Dacian king Decibalus during the 80s. Decibalus had used the Roman money to fortify the Dacian kingdom from future attacks and this was probably quite wise because Trajan had no intention of spending Roman money in this fashion and felt it better to deal with Decibalus of Dacia once and for all. After initially attacking and defeating the Dacians very early in his reign, the Dacians sued for peace, but then prepared for further conflict. Trajan was wise to this and was not prepared to give Decibalus an inch, so he went on an offensive and besieged the Dacian capital at Sarmizagetusa Regia. Decibalus fled east before committing suicide to avoid capture, and his kingdom of Dacia was successfully annexed into the Roman Empire by Trajan. This generated a lot of wealth for Rome and was their first major territory across the Danube River. In the east, the Romans successfully annexed the Nabataean Kingdom, which was originally a confederation of Arab tribes who vied for control of the Sinai Peninsula during the period of the Ptolemaic Kingdom of Egypt. This would have been a major concern for the Parthians, who were the biggest threat to the Romans' eastern frontier. In order for Trajan to be dominant over the Parthians, he would need to show the same intelligence that had enabled him to turn the tables on the Dacians. Always one of the key strategical territories between the Romans and the Parthians was the Armenians and the two superpowers had always wrestled for influence over this much smaller but highly prized kingdom. The Parthians had deposed the pro-Roman monarch of Armenia in 110, likely realising how powerful Trajan was becoming. It is now at this point that we can reconnect back with our story of Trajan and Parthia from way back in episode 3. There, we learned of how Trajan attacked Armenia in response to the Parthian act of replacing the monarch, and upon successfully gaining control there, he moved on to take northern Mesopotamia, 
where he could venture down the Tigris River towards the Parthian capital city of Ctesiphon. By taking control of Ctesiphon, it would send a clear message to the Parthians about taking any kind of liberty with the Romans. Trajan occupied major Parthian cities of Seleucia, Ctesiphon and Susa, managing to reach the Persian Gulf in an Alexander-esque march of dominance through Persian lands. Trajan had successfully expanded the borders of the Roman Empire to have control over an area roughly equivalent to the European countries of England and Wales, France, Belgium, Switzerland, Austria, Hungary and Romania and all lands south of those to the Mediterranean. He held the entire North African coastline including the Egyptian lands around the Lower and Upper Nile River, in Asia the lands of the modern countries of Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Jordan and other states of the Levant including the Sinai Peninsula and the lands of the Caucasian countries Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan. There was one enemy that Trajan couldn't defeat and that was time. As soon as Trajan left to head back to Rome in poor health, the Parthians simply took control of their lands back. So the Roman rule of Mesopotamia was all too brief. When Trajan died in 117 in Cilicia, his successor would be a man also from the city of Italica in Hispania, and his name was Hadrian. Hadrian was pre-adolescent when Trajan effectively became an equivalent of a foster parent to Hadrian after his father died. However, this was not an official adoption in the same way that emperors adopt men to become their successors, and some believe that it may not have been Trajan on his deathbed who made his adoption of Hadrian official, but actually the work of his highly respected wife, Pompeia Plotina. Hadrian Hadrian himself was a trusted military commander of Trajan. However, there was a period of his life when Hadrian took a sabbatical for military and political life and this may have been forced upon him for some reason. This is where we can find evidence of Hadrian staying among the Greeks and even becoming one of the archons of Athens during the 110s. Hadrian was a Grecophile. He loved Greek culture and is noted for being the first bearded Roman emperor, with beards being something more commonly associated with Greeks than Romans. Before Trajan's death, Hadrian had been called upon again for military duty and at the time of Trajan's death had been left commanding Roman forces in Syria. Trajan had taken an upfront and aggressive attitude towards the enemies of the Roman Empire and particularly those such as the Dacians who had attempted to challenge Roman territory during the questionable reign of Domitian. Trajan left the Roman Empire in a much stronger position than he found it. And it might be due to this that Hadrian decided that it was not necessary to continue the expansionist approach and think more about consolidating and defensiveness. Hadrian did not have any concerns about the Parthians reclaiming their Mesopotamian territory 
and also regaining influence over the Kingdom of Armenia. It appears that the Parthians showed no immediate ambition on taking any kind of revenge on the Romans though, preferring to deal with internal drama than excite a battle with a very strong enemy to their west. Hadrian was probably thrilled by the fact that he was the emperor of such a vast territory covering such an array of different cultures as he seemed to be very interested in travelling around his empire opting to spend a lot of time with his legionaries. He may not have necessarily have been able to get away with gallivanting around the empire had he not initially have made sure that things were stable in Rome before he left so he did spend some time in Rome before departing. Upon his visit to Britannia, Hadrian noticed that there was a rebellious nature about the frontier there between the Romans and the natives of the future Scottish lands in the north. Therefore, Hadrian commissioned the construction of a defensive wall across the width of the island to help to prevent any raids of the Roman lands to the south of the island. Hadrian had no interest in waiting for the completion of the wall because he would have other places to visit such as the African and Asiatic lands of the Roman Empire. By the year 124, Hadrian had successfully circumnavigated the Roman lands around the Mediterranean Sea back round to European lands and his beloved Athens. The Athenians seemed to reciprocate the appreciation and valued Hadrian's presence there. Hadrian promoted the Athenian ways of life, including their games and festivals. Hadrian would also be accompanied, certainly on the last part of his travels into Greece, by a young male favourite called Antinus. Hadrian had a very apparent affection for Antinus that was resemblant of classical pederasty that could be found in the military ranks of this era, famously dating back to the Spartans who openly promoted homosexual bonds between individuals in their army. It may well be the case that Hadrian had played the role of the younger male sexual partner to Trajan, his parental guardian and the previous emperor. Now, Hadrian was the elder father figure of the relationship with Antinus being a teenager. Hadrian continued travelling around the empire and Antinus appeared to accompany him everywhere. It seems that they were inseparable. It would be in the year 130 that something very mysterious would happen that would become a subject for debate right up until the present day. While the royal entourage was journeying down the river Nile in Egypt, Antinus fell into the river and drowned. Of course, there have been debates about whether this was an accident or not. Certainly, if Antinus was starting to lose his youthful appeal and obedience or was losing favour to a potential replacement, then this could create a reason for murder. I was left in thought by the fact that it was put forward by the later Bithynian historian Cassius Dio that Antinus was sacrificed. Could it be that he sacrificed his own life in a sacred death that may have granted Hadrian good health, as it had been known that Hadrian had been suffering from ill health in the latter half of the 120s. We may never know for sure. 
We do know that Hadrian was grief-stricken in the aftermath and that Antinus was deified after his death. During episode 43, we mentioned that the second temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed when Vespasian led the Romans to destroy Jerusalem and annex the kingdom of Judea. Jewish religious observance persevered through this Roman period, so by the time of the reign of Hadrian, Judaism was still culturally strong in the area. So when Hadrian attempted to build a temple dedicated to the Roman god Jupiter on the site of the temple, the Jewish people did not accept it. So Hadrian turned the heat up on the Jewish contingent in Judea by banning Jewish practices. The Jews then rallied behind their military leader, Simon Bar Kokhba, and revolted against the Romans. When Hadrian heard of the Jewish revolt, he enlisted the help of the Roman governor of Britannia, namely Sextus Julius Severus, to deal with the problem. The resilient and resourceful Jews caused the Romans to step up their game and unfortunately for the Jews, the Romans had the resources to do so. The Jewish revolt was put down and Simon Bar Kokhba died at the last Jewish stronghold at the town of Betar. All Jews were expelled from Jerusalem and the Roman city of Aila Capitolina was built in Jerusalem's place. The former lands of the Kingdom of Judea were now the Roman province of Syria, Palestina, named after the Philistine historical enemies of the Jews. Hadrian's ultimate popularity on his death in 138 is debatable. The empire was as strong as ever during his reign thanks in part to the strength of his predecessor Trajan. The Senate didn't care for him as much as they did for Trajan because Hadrian had little empathy for them, preferring to promote the power of the emperor's own imperial council. Hadrian is a bit like Tiberius where there are cases to be made to call him a good emperor and a bad emperor. Antoninus Pius Hadrian was just 62 years old when he died and he had suffered with ill health for the last decade of his life. He had chosen a young man called Marcus Aurelius to be his successor but when Hadrian's health was failing him he was forced to adopt a man called Antoninus Pius as his son and heir because Marcus Aurelius was only 17 years old and too young to be accepted as emperor. Antoninus Pius was around 51 years old so it may have been expected that he would just be filling a gap until Marcus Aurelius was considered old enough. In contrast to his predecessor Antoninus chose to spend most of his time in Rome. Antoninus Pius has been described as measured, moderate and mild-mannered which is maybe a testament to the wise maturity that brought him to be the stopgap emperor that was required until Malchus Aurelius came of age. It does also seem that the Roman Empire had also matured somewhat since the erratic nature of the differing characters 
who were the emperors of Rome during the first century. Now it seems that Rome, the Senate and the Praetorian Guard were all regulating each other more effectively than ever and even if some may question Hadrian's attitude to the role of emperor, the empire didn't ultimately suffer as a consequence, which could be why he is considered as a good emperor. Antoninus Pius was rocked by the death of his wife Faustina very early in his reign. It does appear that Antoninus had great affection for his wife and was genuinely aggrieved by her passing. He went to great lengths to honour her memory and have her commemorated as a diva. Now in the modern world, a diva invokes thoughts of a female celebrity surrounded by an entourage of people in her service, often renowned for having expensive tastes and being highly demanding. This term actually derives from the Latin term for a goddess. So when we describe Antoninus Pius attempting to have his wife commemorated as a diva, we mean that he wanted her to be deified as a goddess. We have witnessed some national leaders losing their way after the death of a beloved companion, but this just seemed to strengthen the resolve of Antoninus, who dealt with his grief in a healthy manner and as emperor, he remained a servant to the empire. He wasn't a weak or recessive emperor. He would take the necessary action required to deal with any rebellions on the borderlands of the empire, such as Britannia, Germania, Dacia and Mauritania. It seems that Rome was stable and healthy during the reign of Antoninus Pius. There was a great celebration of the 900th anniversary of the founding of the city of Rome in 148 that included religious sacrifices and performances and games in the theatres. A Romano-Parthian peace was established following an attempt by the Parthians to invade Armenia that was ultimately unsuccessful. Despite being brought in to enable Marcus Aurelius to come of age, Antoninus Pius successfully ruled over the empire for over 22 years. A Strange Succession This episode has been about the five good emperors, a retrospective name based on an observation of a peaceful age on the Roman Empire during the 2nd century. It started with the brief reign of Nerva, who replaced the unpopular Domitian. Nerva was brought in to bring some much-needed stability to the empire, and he was succeeded by Trajan, Hadrian and Antoninus Pius, all of whom kept the Roman Empire in a good place. The fifth good emperor was Marcus Aurelius, the man who Hadrian had nominated to become the emperor, but as he was only a teenager, Antoninus Pius took the reins while Marcus Aurelius gained some maturity. Despite being the fifth emperor in a linear fashion, Marcus Aurelius did not rule on his own. Antoninus Pius had given the best of his attention to Marcus Aurelius, believing that it would be Marcus Aurelius who would take over. When Antoninus Pius died in 161 at the ripe old age of 74, it would have been natural for Marcus Aurelius to accede to the imperial throne. 
However, Marcus Aurelius decided that he wanted to co-rule the empire alongside a man called Lucius Verus. On the face of it, it may seem that Marcus Aurelius was intimidated by the role. The legacy that Marcus Aurelius tells us something different. Marcus Aurelius is described as an icon of Stoicism, which is a method of thinking that gained academic traction after the lifetime of Socrates, the ancient Greek philosopher from the 5th century BCE. In a nutshell, this means that he lived his life believing that he was just one part of a big natural picture and that his biggest contribution would be to fit in with the natural order of things, so his recommendation that Lucius Verus rule the empire alongside him, in his mind, was for the good of the empire, because as a Stoic, he would have believed that his own personal desires were secondary to the needs of the empire. The concept of dual emperors is not as bizarre as it might initially seem to us. Back in the days of the Republic, Rome had traditionally allocated duties in twos, such as there being two consuls and two censors. Even during the years of the Empire, emperors would often adopt two successors, such as when Emperor Claudius adopted Nero to rule alongside his own son Britannicus. It's just that when push came to shove, one of the men would take all the power, sometimes finding a way to make his potential co-ruler disappear. On this occasion, Marcus Aurelius would want to do things in what he believed to be the correct way. Lucius Verus did not have to wait long before he had to spring into action. On the death of Antoninus Pius, Parthia decided that they'd had enough of the peace and deposed the pro-Roman king of Armenia in favour of their own choice of ruler. Even though Lucius Verus was successful in reversing this sequence of events, after he left, the Parthians simply put their own ruler back again. The point is that although Lucius Verus is often overlooked in favour of the more well-known Marcus Aurelius, Lucius Verus and his generals successfully pushed into Parthian territory all the way down to Ctesiphon. This was the first time that this had been achieved since the reign of Trajan. It wasn't Parthians who drove the Romans out of Parthian territory in the Near East in the year 165, but plague. The plague that may have broke out among the Roman army could have happened while they were attempting to besiege the Parthian city of Seleucia. But this particular plague, which could have been a deadly strain of smallpox or measles, seemed to be very contagious as it spread through the Roman legions, right the way back through to the legions in European lands all the way back to Gaul. We now call this plague the Antonine Plague, after the Antonine dynasty of Rome, who were the current set of rulers. There is also some speculation that Romans visited China during the mid-160s, as referenced by Chinese texts. And there are also mentions of plague in those texts. But we can still only speculate about the specific nature of this plague. 
Incidentally, while this is possibly the first time that a Roman embassy was sent to China, this certainly wasn't the first interaction between Rome and China. The Emperor Tiberius, well over a hundred years previous, tried to put restrictions on silk trade within the empire, fearing that it would have a negative impact on the textile industry within the Roman Empire itself. The spread of the Antonine Plague was very likely encouraged by the fact that Roman legions were required to relocate to the Danube River, where Germans were crossing over into lands understood to be on the Roman side of their border in the past. The Romans and the Germans had enjoyed a degree of stability in their relationship with each other during the reign of Antoninus Pius, and speculation exists as to why the German invasion of the Roman borderlands happened now. The Parthians took their opportunity possibly challenging the new emperors of Rome, but the Germans waited a few years, so this may not have been the reason for their incursions. Possibly population pressures are responsible, but we're not completely sure. Regardless, it was this urgency that caused the Roman legions to be recalled from the Near East, bringing the Antonine Plague with them that would go on to kill millions of Romans, including the Emperor Lucius Verus in 169, leaving Marcus Aurelius to rule alone. If Marcus Aurelius was considering a more diplomatic solution before the death of Lucius Verus and the deaths of many legionaries, then he changed his mind when the Germans continued to cross the Danube. One of the main German tribes involved in the push into Roman territory were the Marcomanni, and so this name was used to describe the series of conflicts called the Marcomannic Wars. Possibly as many as 20,000 Romans died on a disastrous campaign to push the Germans back across the Danube, and this would only serve to make the Marcomannic Wars drag out throughout the 170s. The German tribes from the area of Pannonia had settled into some areas of northern Italy, and others had made incursions into the Balkans. The Romans had not been in such turmoil for many decades. Reports of an uprising in the province of Egypt and a challenge to the position of emperor by a Roman governor from the eastern provinces called Arvidius Cassius. Despite all of these challenges, somehow Marcus Aurelius was able to overcome them all one by one. Arvidius Cassius was murdered by one of his own centurions and in the final years of the 170s, Marcus Aurelius was able to push many of the German tribes back across the Danube, where he followed them and occupied their own territory, threatening to annex their lands. Not bad considering that the Germans were doing the same thing to the Romans at the start of the same decade. It was in the year 180, while Marcus Aurelius was in the city of Vindabona on the river Danube, that he would die of natural causes at the age of 58. Vindabona is the modern city of Vienna, the capital of Austria. He would be succeeded as the Roman Emperor by his son Commodus, who was just 18 years old and had been declared as a co-ruler alongside his father some four years earlier. Commodus 
would make peace with the Germans, ending the Marcomannic Wars. The period of the Five Good Emperors is not known as the period of the Six Good Emperors, which gives us a bit of a clue about the reign of Commodus. He was a young man and Marcus Aurelius had not adopted a co-ruler. The young man did not adjust well to the conspiracies that can often surround a new emperor, especially a young one, and was rather despotic in his response. Then we see something from Commodus that we hadn't really seen since the first century in the likes of Nero, with an insistence on performing as a gladiator and an attempt to rename Rome, the 12 months of the calendar and the Roman military legions, among other things, after himself. String together this megalomania with the execution of a number of senators who both may and may not have been conspiring to dethrone him, and the end of Commodus's reign may have been predictable. A Praetorian guard prefect called Letus may have been fearing that his fortune might be heading the same way as one of his predecessors, Tigidius Perennis, who was executed by his own troops at the command of Commodus. Letus took the initiative to make the first move, and on New Year's Eve, 192. The plan was to poison Commodus with the help of his mistress Marcia. However, the poison made Commodus sick and he vomited the poison before having a bath. While in his bath, Commodus's own personal trainer, a man called Narcissus, strangled him in one of the more shameful deaths of a Roman emperor. Okay, so that's almost put another century of Roman history to bed as we try and breeze through into the next uh, part. I think someone has written in saying that they were getting a little bit bored with the Roman history, but it's such an incredible and an important part of history that we we should cover it in full detail. And um, to be fair to you, I mean, I think it's we're probably on the knockings now. It's probably only going to be about another, and within another half a dozen episodes, I believe that we'll be sort of pretty much uh, closing it down. And then, of course, we'll be able to understand all the other surrounding cultures that much better when we talk about the Celts and we talk about the Scythians and we talk about um, other cultures, the the cultures of the steppe and uh, the Celtic and the Germanic cultures. It will make a lot more sense to us. It's very, very important. And to be fair, I mean, the Roman history spans such a vast amount of time uh, that it was always going to take a while to get through it. And um, I think the next time that we're probably going to get bogged down in a subject um, to a significant amount of episodes will probably be once we get up to World War One and World War Two. so uh, interestingly enough there's, no, there's not really another period of history quite like the Romans so um, 
interesting point but um yes we will cover it correctly as we should do and and you wouldn't expect anything less from this podcast i would imagine um but yeah i'll tell you what it's a it's a it's a journey and a half isn't it right let's crack on with some messages um we've got a lot to fit in this week Eric Morgan has written in saying, uh, well, Chris, I move through the podcast at, shall we say, a sedate pace. I absolutely love them, more now than when I emailed a month ago. Uh, disappointed the good Professor Roberts didn't respond, uh, re our friend on the grub truck. Oh, no, I got, I, I've got nothing bad to say about, about Professor Roberts, especially after she did that uh, prehistoric autopsy, um, what's that, almost 10 years ago now. Fantastic series. Um, um, and then um, I okay yeah talking about the grub truck actually there's been a development uh, in relation to that uh, we've discovered um, thanks to one of our loyal listeners um, a lady called Mandy Kirk has uh, signed up um, onto the uh, Tapper Talk uh, discussion forums where we talk all things history and she's pointed out that the, the the thing on the side of the grub truck that we were discussing way back in 2018 when we were walking through volume one on the prehistoric age this creature on the side of the grub truck is actually a Banksy so it's a Banksy stencil and a rather good icon for um not just the grub truck, but probably this podcast actually is uh, is actually a a caveman or like a star like a creature in the style of a caveman with very uh, Australopithecine style facial features, uh, carrying um, what can only be described as what something looks like a McDonald's uh, value meal with uh, complete with burger fries and and a, and a thick shake uh, by looks of it. And um, the uh, it's almost like you know a, a connection between the modern age and, and the ancient age and or, or the prehistoric age, I should even say. And uh, you know, are we a better creature now than we were then? And uh, certainly, the History of the World podcast spans those two time periods from when we uh, start from the evolution of humans and. We take our journey right the way through to uh, globalisation and climate change and uh, things like that. So well done, Mandy, for solving a two-year-old mystery that no one else has come back in that whole period. And you, so you are, you have a, a special distinction there. You stand out from the crowd on this occasion, Mandy. Well done, uh, Bruce uh, Vomero. Vomero. Um, forgive me, struggling to pronounce that name. Very, very sorry uh, for getting it wrong, which I'm sure I have. Um, I want to comment on Volume 1, Episode 9. You mentioned that, that two opposing adaptations in early humans were the streamlining of the hips to facilitate walking and running on two legs and encephalization. That's uh, the, the expansion of our brain, which is super big now compared to our size. This situation led to human offspring being born relatively undeveloped or underdeveloped, as so yeah, underdeveloped should be, um, extending the nurturing period. That is correct. Add to that the nurturing period, the need 
to acquire the knowledge necessary to do all the things humans do required people to live long enough to see their offspring fully developed both physically and educationally. Years ago I read that because of this situation human females evolved the menopause which is essentially losing the resource intensive reproductive ability extending the female life cycle. Human females are the only known species to have this adaptation. You also mentioned in more than one episode that both Homo neanderthalensis and Homo sapiens took care of the old and lame. The long nurturing combined with the extended life cycle gives some insight into the kind of contribution people too old or lame to hunt or gather could offer the group. In the little town of Walden, New York, where I live, it's common to see grandparents pushing strollers or playing with grandchildren in the park while parents are off working. Yes, that's very, uh, that's a very important role, isn't it, that grandparents play in in, their, in young children's lives. There's a very special bond there between grandparents and grandchildren, and uh, it's a very interesting connection you've made there between um, the fact that um, modern human species care for the old, and it and it is the two that possibly require more parental guidance in terms of the older members a bit like the elephants you know when you look at elephants it's often the the mothers and the grandmothers that take great care in uh looking after the young and it's almost if as if the grandmother is teaching the mother how to mother in in um in a group of elephants the um the same thing can probably be uh, held true of of humans and that there, there is probably that connection there it's probably something that has evolved side by side excellent email Bruce Max Parker has written in and has, has put really enjoying the podcast uh, Chris I only started listening about six months ago but I burned through the first two chapters quick smart I slowed down a bit after that as I dreaded catching up and not having a couple of hours worth to listen to at a time I was also apprehensive about when you got round to the Romans as I have a lot ex- a lot of experience about them but I needn't have worried They have been covered in your usual excellent manner. Even though you seem determined to pronounce the Roman names in the most eccentric way possible. Please keep up the good work and I look forward to the series going on forever. Uh, Well, it can't go on forever, I'm afraid. We we have to come to an end at some point. Um, But we're in volume three and I'm hoping to get, um, you know, volume four, five, six and seven in there before we have to consider what else we can do um but um in terms of the point that you've made about the romans yes i mean obviously um i i study this with the same respect that i've studied all other um aspects of our history i think you know you have to do that if you're gonna if you're gonna do the project properly but then also um i think this this whole thing with um being determined to pronounce Roman names in the most eccentric way possible is interesting. Um, I, th- I sort of first stumbled across it when I was coming across the ancient age, and, I, and you look at, um, you know, Greece, and I always use Thucydides as a great example of a name that, you know, in Greek you would not say Thucydides, you'd, you'd say something more like Thucydides. But if I started talking about Thucydides, um, people may not necessarily know who I'm talking about, and it's the same same problem that if I was talking about Gaius Julius Kaiser, 
you you wouldn't know that I was talking about Julius Caesar. So it's best just to say Julius Caesar. It's the same with uh, Cicero. Would undoubtedly have not have been called Cicero. That's like an anglicised version of the name. Uh, the reason why I say Tiberius instead of uh, Tiberius. Um, you know, those kinds of things are really showing more respect for the Romance languages, I think, um, when I'm um, when I'm mentioning them. But like, once again, this week, it's an interesting one because Trajan is, is certainly a very anglicised version of um, what we should probably be call, calling him Trajan. And, and I've heard him called Trajan on different, um, you know, broadcasts by other people. And I quite understand why There's, you didn't have that J sound in in uh, Roman or Latin um, back then, or we we suspect that they certainly didn't. Um, but so it's very interesting to discuss. You could go on about it all day, but thanks for the email. Very interesting. Now, of course, if you love the History of the World podcast, which I hope many of you. Uh, do then don't forget that you can support the podcast just rate and review us wherever you listen to us it helps us to get exposed to a wider audience and in that respect we can also entice people to potentially contribute towards the upkeep of the podcast we uh, obviously have to invest in materials reading materials we have to pay our bills of course um, you know pay for the internet and, and one thing and another uh, all those things that go towards making this podcast the successful little project that it is. Um, you can visit the History of the World podcast.com website, which is an uh, which is a great place to go exploring when you've finished the podcast and you want something more. Just have a little look around there and then also click the Patreon link. It will take you to the Patreon page of the History of the World podcast and you can sign up, make a monthly donation and qualify for some wonderful rewards once you've accumulated a certain amount of um, a certain amount of donations. Uh, we welcome into the History of the World podcast Illuminati, that exclusive group for people who uh, contribute towards the upkeep of the podcast, uh, Teresa uh, Stanislaw and um, we also welcome in uh, Katia Wojtovic and uh, you are now both lifelong members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati um, we will be discussing um, with Mandy Kirk has posed a question to us that will be that won't be discussed this week maybe next week uh, she's interested in the Amazons so that should be interesting to discuss and um, also, um, we have successfully uh, managed to get our hands on the very first History of the World podcast T-shirt and the History of the World podcast mug, our, our hot drinks mug. And they both look excellent. So I'm looking forward to distributing them to some of our Patreons, some of our Illuminati members. Uh, so much to get through this week. I mean, I'm not going to. I'm not going to get through it all. That's this is my punishment for um, having a week off last week and um, opting for the artistically poignant ending to Pompeii uh, with uh, with silence at the end. That's this is my punishment. Not having enough time to read out all my announcements. So some reviews here. Just uh, just some brief ones to read out here. We've got. 
Um, Tim X10 uh, from the USA has written great. Chris has made an interesting subject more so. I have a half hour drive to work with no cell and bad radio coverage. Download at home and it's a nice ride with a friend who really knows his stuff. Keep the VOG. It took me a while to work out what the VOG was. It's the, the voice of God, of course, which um, some people said they were not sure about. Then we had a poll, I think, some time ago, and it uh, it was overwhelmingly voted to be kept. So, um, brilliant. We, uh, the voice of God has done an awful lot better than Donald Trump. Um, uh, Vicili, Vicili, um, from Canada has written, well done and insightful. If you're looking for some history, give it a try. That's the spirit. Thank you very much. And then uh, finally, we've got another Mike from Canada. He's put great listen, five stars. This has been a great podcast to listen to on my daily commute. The episodes are a good length and the pace is a little slow, which stops you from missing too much when life throws distractions your way. First season was particularly interesting in tracing human evolution from little rodent-like creatures to modern humans. Keep it up, Chris, and add another review from Canada to the tally. Yeah, uh, this is one of those things that um, we've had a bit of a a chuckle to ourselves about is um, people have uh, certainly reacted to the fact that I was picking on Canada in one of my previous episodes saying that they haven't reviewed enough. And the irony is that the Canadians now have put the the British to shame. So the British podcast reviews are now outnumbered by the Canadian ones. And uh, you know, I've, you know, I'll tell you what, you know, if pick a, pick on the Canadians, and and they'll soon show you um, what you know. They'll soon show you what business is, won't they? They they come back in abundance. Uh, but anyway. Thank you so much for everyone that's reviewed wherever you are in the world and uh, it really does help the podcast. Next week, uh, we'll be continuing this story. Um, we've had a lot of emperors, a lot of a long line of emperors, one after the other. We've been telling the story of that. Uh, but next week, we're going to be entering into the third century where things, uh, things start to change substantially. The Roman Empire has to evolve once more to find out more you'll have to tune in next week but uh, until then thanks very much for listening this week and don't forget until we meet again in seven days time don't forget to be good do you want more from the history of the world podcast then visit our website historyoftheworldpodcast.com you can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.